From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Adam Wigger. I'm Mia Wagner. And I'm Michael Mikowski. And I am a candidate for President of the United States. I am going to run for President, that's correct. What's going to be different this time? We're going to win. We are going to win. I'm the son of South Bend, Indiana, and I am running for President of the United States. In this podcast series, we will speak with UW-Madison faculty members and other campaign and election experts and hear their insight into the 2020 election. And we will make America great again. This is the United States of America. There has never... To announce my candidacy for president of... This is 1050 Bascom, election 2020. Today on 1050 Bascom Election 2020, we are very lucky to have Professor Ellie Powell on to discuss the state of the race and money in politics. Today, we'll also be discussing the UW Election Research Center's poll results that were just released. Professor Powell, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Maybe we can start with that poll that was just released. What are some of the main findings that came out of that? Yeah, so we conducted a poll of three Midwestern swing states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and of course, Wisconsin. And I would say the big picture finding is that we see... Uh, Senator Sanders having strong strength across all three states. But in each case, you know, he's receiving, you know, 25 to 30 percent. So strong showing, but not not certainly a majority. And then, you know, the the other major candidates are, you know, display varying strengths across the, the three states, perhaps of most interest here in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin, you know, after Senator Sanders, the sort of other leading contenders are all around tied at 13 percent. Biden, Bloomberg, Buttigieg and Warren. Senator Klobuchar trails them a little bit. So something interesting out of this survey, too, is the distinction and breakdown between race and gender. Could we maybe get into that a little bit about how the candidates fall with support from these different demographic groups? Yeah, perhaps not. Surprisingly, we do see some variation across race and gender for support among the the number of candidates. We see um, Joe Biden leading among black voters, whereas Senator Sanders leads among both whites and Hispanics. It's worth noting that there isn't a huge amount of racial variation in the population of these states. You know, Wisconsin in particular isn't very diverse, so it's not a huge sample of non-white voters, but that's those are the differences that we see. And is there anything that stood out to you as being very different from the 2016 election cycle as far as support for different policies or different candidates who hold different ideas? The 2020 race is just wildly different, right, with yeah. so many different candidates playing out, whereas, you know, 2016 had just sort of narrowed to those those two candidates. You know, that's, I think, the, the biggest distinction is just this multi-candidate differentiation has sort of weakened or diluted the support that Senator Sanders received in 2016. Okay. The poll also broke down matchups of all the candidates against Trump in Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. It's looking like no one did worse than Donald Trump in these head-to-head matchups. Is that saying something about electability for all of these candidates, at least in these three states? Yeah, so I think one of the reasons why we wanted to commission the poll of these three states is these are some of the three battleground states going into the general election in 2020. In some sense, none of these states are likely to be influential in the primary themselves. It's really about looking ahead to the general election. And so I think what we see across all of these states looking at the head-to-heads, in each case, 
the candidates are at least tied with President Trump. In some cases, the candidates have a six or seven point lead against um, President Trump. And so it suggests that any of these Democratic candidates would potentially make it a competitive race. But I don't think any of these candidates would, are going to walk away with the race in any of these states. Yeah. There's going to be a contested general election. And these numbers are sort of showing that we're going to see this. Nobody's going to walk away with it. And things are going to stay stay close and interesting looking ahead to November. So kind of stepping back from the survey and just talking a little bit more generally about the state of the race, does the Democratic nominee really matter? Are some of the candidates more likely to mobilize widespread turnout than others? I think the candidates would have different strengths in a general election, right? So someone like Senator Sanders would be really good at mobilizing and bringing out liberal voters, particularly younger voters, particularly Hispanic voters, who might often not turn out in most votes, most elections, even if they would potentially support the candidate. So he would have a sort of a strong turnout story. The flip side is Senator Sanders would likely turn off sort of moderate voters or sort of moderate Republicans, the sort of never Trumper Republicans who otherwise a sort of more moderate Democratic nominee might be able to bring over to the Democratic side. So I would say the candidates have very different potential paths to success. And it's not really clear what the sort of net math would work out to, whether the sort of turnout game of Senator Sanders or whether the sort of more moderate bring this sort of two parties together would be a better general election strategy. Is there a candidate or a set of candidates that minority voters will have a harder time supporting that could potentially lead to a loss in November for Democrats? Well, it certainly seems like several of the candidates have had a tough time speaking to minority voters, particularly black voters. We've really only seen uh, Vice President Biden and Senator Sanders really get any levels of sort of non-white support in the race thus far. Mm -hmm. You know, just obviously coming up on Saturday, we have the South Carolina primary, which is going to be the first contest that really has a sizable contingent of black voters. It looks like Congressman Clyburn is going to endorse Vice President Biden Mm -hmm. on Wednesday, which would potentially be a big deal in terms of additional support among the black community. We'll see if that if that does materialize. That could be a sort of important moment to sort of help him stabilize his support so his voters don't go to somebody else. But we have seen Mayor Bloomberg and some of the others have a at least a very difficult time connecting with black voters. In Mayor Bloomberg's case, there's, of course, the history of stop and frisk and other sort of really racialized policies that have been incredibly controversial and you know some argue detrimental to the black community. And so we'll see if, if he's going to be able to sort of overcome that with all of the money and advertising effort he's spent to sort of reach out to those voters, to communicate with those voters, to sort of say that his policies have changed and sort of under, you know, pivot to where he is today. It's really an open question, and, and we'll see on Saturday how that plays out. How much do endorsements at this stage matter? It's really difficult to say how much any individual endorsement matters. It really just depends on how strongly voters feel about the opinion of that endorser, right? So if it's an endorser who doesn't have a huge following, who people sort of don't connect with, don't feel like that endorser shares their interests, it's not going to have a big effect. So I'm not wildly surprised that Marion Williamson's endorsement yeah. didn't really shift the dynamics yeah. of, of the race. But I think, you know, if you have a politician who a lot of voters um, trust and respect and sort of, you um think that that person shares their judgment, it, it can have an impact, especially with this sort of fluid race where a lot of voters, I think, like several of the candidates and aren't sure who's viable versus where they would be potentially wasting their vote. And so I think endorsements can help 
people sort of coordinate on some of these really challenging strategic situations. I think voters are just genuinely uncertain. A lot of these candidates have been sort of hamstrung in terms of fundraising, and so they haven't been able to get their message out to voters, particularly beyond the, the early states where they've been playing with. This is where essentially Mayor Bloomberg's big advantage plays. It turns out you know, spending $400 million plus on advertising lets you get your message to a lot of voters where the other candidates just haven't had the opportunity to make their case. So a lot of the work you've done in your academic career has been looking at super PACs and finance and money in politics. You were just talking about Bloomberg and how much of his own money he's putting into his campaign. What do you kind of make of this super PAC debate that's emerging among Democrats, whether it's okay to accept that money or not? So it's it's an important debate, and I would just say stepping back a little bit, it's not just super PACs that are sort of the big fundraising vehicles. There are mm-hmm. these um, 501c organizations, essentially these nonprofits that do a lot of similar spending that can hide the identity of their donors. And so there's lots of big vehicles for major contributions from individuals or other sorts of entities. I think I can understand why a lot of both voters and candidates are concerned about perceptions of conflict, perceptions of inequality, sort of distortions of the democratic process that this big money brings into the system. On the flip side, it's it's tough for any individual candidate to say, I'm going to not accept the advantages that all the other candidates in the race right. are going to, even if that's my sort of principled position. And so it's a tough trade-off, mm-hmm. right? Do they you know, hurt their message, hurt their campaign by taking what they think of as the sort of more ethical position? And you know, that's is that same more ethical position going to potentially hurt the party in the general election when most Democrats are sort of most concerned about winning the general election. And so there's a lot of different ethical versus strategic considerations to take into account when the candidates are making those sorts of choices. How much of this campaign cycle do you think is a game of money and fundraising compared to other ones? Money and fundraising is always incredibly important in every election cycle. The strange thing about this election cycle is just how all of the other candidates have just been blown out of the water by Mm. the Bloomberg fundraising. I can't even say it's fundraising operation, the Bloomberg (laughs) spending. It's just we've never seen anything like this. In the the political science literature, one of the sort of classic truisms is generally we don't see self-funded candidates do very well. Mm -hmm. But that's in part for two reasons. One, you know, often candidates self-fund when they can't raise money from donors, nobody wants to personally spend their money. Instead, they just, it's sort of a method of last resort if they can't raise the money elsewhere. And so, you know, often that's a sort of sign of a campaign weakness turning yeah. to self-fundraising. The other sign is other candidates have spent a lot of money in terms of self-funding their own campaigns, but a, a lot of money has been in the like 20 to 30 <laughs> to maybe $60 million range, which don't get me wrong, is a tremendous amount of money. It's yeah. much, much more money than and most of us have access to, but it's nowhere close to the you know, 400, 500 million dollars that Bloomberg is spending. And so that really shifts the, the whole dynamic and, you know, gives Bloomberg a huge let up in terms of speaking to voters and sort of building strength, particularly as this race plays out sequentially where the other candidates are playing, you know, running ads in the early states as things come up. But mm-hmm. the race, the contest happens so quickly, they can't then you know, shift enough money to the next contest as they're happening. Instead, they're sort of playing these things one at a time. And, you know, Bloomberg is just on the air everywhere. And people are sort of being blanketed by these messages and messages tying him to President Obama, tying him to sort of all sorts of popular Democratic policies. And 
you know, he's been able to define himself through these ads and the other Democrats until the last debate really haven't had an opportunity to push back and sort of try to define him in a, a sort of more negative light. And so far, it seems to be paying off. It does. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens in, in South Carolina and we'll see what happens as we sort of move ahead to Super Tuesday, where you know Bloomberg is going to be on the ballot and sort of fully contesting these races. Looking at Bloomberg also in his performance in the debate, which wasn't a great performance. He took a lot of heat from a lot of the candidates which made quite a bit of news, actually. How do you factor in sort of his debate performance and the effect on his campaign and the Democratic primary more broadly? Well, it certainly wasn't a strong performance. I think the Bloomberg campaign acknowledges that. I think everyone acknowledges that. It was a particularly bad (laughs) debate performance, not just a sort of weak debate performance. I think the challenge for Bloomberg is the viewership numbers were up for this past debate relative to the previous debates, but they're still not that high, right? There's mm-hmm. only a sm- relatively small set of voters that actually watch these debates. And so it's sort of a question of how much does that narrative trickle out into the general public that his performance was so weak? And does that sort of start to worry people about his ability to challenge President Trump in the fall? And so, you know, the number of people who actually watched that debate and came away who might not support Bloomberg might not be that big. But, you know, if the message gets out there through media descriptions and other sorts of things, that could snowball and really weaken Bloomberg as essentially everybody's so concerned with this sort of big general election Mm -hmm. picture. On the flip side of of that debate performance with Bloomberg, Warren had a a much stronger performance. Despite some of her high-profile endorsements, she still didn't get any Nevada bounce. Why do you think Warren isn't doing better than maybe she could have? So I think two things are are hurting Warren. I think first, with regard to Nevada, one thing that hasn't been as much talked about is there was a decent amount of early voting in Nevada. So a lot of those votes were sort of already locked in before the debate, and people couldn't change their vote. And so I think in some cases that hurt her, where she fell below the threshold of eligibility once those sort of early votes were taken into account. So it was sort of almost too soon relative to her strong performance for us to see that bounce uh, play out. You know, Warren faces, as many female candidates face, a difficult situation in these debate contexts where, you know, a lot of the gender research shows essentially that women are judged more harshly if they say sort of um, critical things or if they don't come across as sort of soft and warm. And so I think, you know, her consultants and so other campaign advisors might have been encouraging her to, you know, play up her softer side, not go after these guys in the sort of hostile debate context where, which could rebound as sort of a negative views about her as being sort of too harsh and, and mean as a woman. And so they've encouraged her to play up, you know, Bailey, her golden retriever, and sort of show the, the softer side of things, which don't get me wrong, everyone loves a golden retriever. There's not nothing wrong with that as a campaign strategy, but it didn't let her play to her strengths, right? Her really strong debating background, her ability to sort of think on her feet and respond and sort of do the, the debate repartee and you know, really push Bloomberg and some of these others on their potential weaknesses. And so I think a lot of Democrats seeing that remembered what they liked about her initially and sort of thought how she could potentially bring that same toughness to a debate with President Trump. And so, you know, we'll see if she's able to sort of overcome what's often called the gender double bind that, you know, if you you do the tough thing, you're you're not liked. And then if you're soft, you don't make the the critical arguments, you don't get to show off those strengths. And so it's really a, a difficult position for Senator Warren and just like, you know, most female candidates face in these contexts. The Election Research Center poll one of the other highlights was that two-thirds of the respondents said that America was ready to elect a woman president. But then when you looked at the demographic breakdown of support of the candidates from both male and female voters, there was very little difference. How would you explain that? 
happen. Yeah, it's really interesting. We aren't seeing female voters gravitate towards the female candidates in the race. Gender literature shows that women share a lot of the same gender biases that, that men share in terms of how they evaluate candidates. That might be part of it. It does seem like neither Warren nor Klobuchar are really benefiting by what we saw as terms of some of the like rallying around Hillary Clinton as like the first female candidate and that sort of like symbolic um, joy that that brought to a lot of women. We just aren't seeing that play out, at least in terms of the data, in terms of support for either of those candidates. You know, we'll see what things look like going forward. It looks like both Senator Klobuchar and even potentially Senator Warren are sort of have a, a tough race ahead of them. Do you think that some of that lack of support amongst women for female candidates could be a result of 2016, kind of a, a gut punch for, for women who thought that they were going to elect the first female president and realized that that was not the case? I think so many voters are, particularly female voters, are so concentrated on beating President Trump in the general election. Even if they think that a woman could win, they might not think that the strongest candidate is a woman. And you could say the same for the field, narrowing narrowing down to all white people as well. You could, exactly. That essentially, you know, that all of the, the sort of lack of any candidates of color really suggests the same thing. That, you know, even if voters might be inclined to support those candidates, they might worry that other voters might be prejudiced or that they might not be the strongest contender in the general election. In regards to the female candidates who are still in the race, and according to your poll and also nationally, they aren't showing a large amount of support. How long do you think they will stay in the race? And what do you think their strategic and monetary concerns are there? That's a great question. I think all of the non-Bloomberg candidates are pretty strapped for cash right now, and I'm sure that that applies to both Klobuchar and Warren. I would say Warren has probably one of the more loyal bases and a sort of loyal fundraising base. She's raised a lot of money following the debate in the the last few days as sort of her voters get re-energized about her candidacy. So she certainly is going to have at least a short-term infusion of cash to work with. Senator Klobuchar is, I think, a more difficult question. You know, she you know, hasn't been polling very well. She hasn't, you know, accrued many delegates. You know, we see in our poll um, of these Midwestern swing states, she doesn't perform well, even in states like Wisconsin, which, you know, is a neighboring state. And so if she doesn't get a big infusion of of fundraising, I I wouldn't be surprised if she drops out sort of sooner rather than later. Senator Warren, I think, is going to have the resources to to fight on a little bit longer. It's really just going to be a question of whether she wants to step back and either let the opposition to Senator Sanders coalesce or let her voters go on to support Senator Sanders we'll see how she weighs those different considerations moving forward. We're kind of turning to Bernie Sanders now, the apparent frontrunner winning three primaries. I've seen multiple commentators say, you know, one of the best arguments for electability is simply winning primary contests. And he's been doing exactly that. I want to know what you think about Bernie identifying as not a traditional Democrat or at some points in time, not even identifying as a Democrat, period. According to the Election Research Center survey, Bernie Sanders is doing so incredibly well among voters 18 to 29. He is polling more than 50 percent. Is the way he identifies at all important going forward? I think it's going to be really interesting how voters view Senator Sanders. In some ways, the way he's tried to frame himself as like not an establishment Democrat and sort of actively being a Democratic Socialist, not being a member of the Democratic Party for so long, on the sort of positive side, lets him frame himself as sort of an outsider, not part of the establishment, someone who's going to help change Washington, right? The the flip side to that is, you know, there's some concern that, you know, being a socialist is not necessarily a popular position that's going to be sort of 
potentially easy for President Trump to caricaturize or sort of target as sort of not being within with the mainstream, not being a capitalist, not being sort of a, a sort of true classic American. And, you know, it's sort of an, an interesting background he brings. You know, a lot of I, I'm primarily a, a Congress scholar. And so looking at Senators Sanders record while in Congress, it, it's it's very interesting, right? You know, he's been an independent, he's been a democratic socialist, he hasn't been a loyal member of the Democratic Party. Often he took positions and voted against democratic legislation because it wasn't sufficiently liberal. What the consequence of that often was in the congressional politics was if that his vote was pivotal, well, then they need to go get another vote from a Republican and they'd make the legislation mm-hmm. a little bit more conservative to get a Republican on board. So, you know, often Senator Sanders' um, ideological purity push legislation in a more conservative direction. Now, you could say that that's a sign of his sort of deep ideological commitment to the sort of purest view, to sort of more a more liberal politics, and maybe that works better in the context of presidency, where you can sort of t- have a stronger role in sort of shaping the content of legislation. But it's interesting to sort of see, to think about what that record means to Democrats and sort of how voters are going to view that sort of history while in Congress. When we're saying that there's a chance that maybe the candidate doesn't even really matter, that people are going to turn out on either side of the ideological spectrum where they identify, what is your take on that Trump is not by any means a traditional Republican and Bernie Sanders, who is leading the Democratic Party as of now, hasn't identified as a Democrat? How do you think that that will kind of play out with the partisan divide? Things are not boring in politics in America in 2020, that's for sure. I mean, I would say it's certainly surprising that both parties in, you know, it looks like certainly the Republicans in 2016 and now the Democrats look increasingly likely in 2020 are nominating people who certainly aren't traditional party members, existing leaders of their party. It's really strange. Now, part of the reason why that happens is because these multi-candidate primary races are just sort of wild, right? Anytime you have this many candidates running, it's really difficult for anyone to get enough support. And so each of those candidates were unusual enough and had like a really deep base of support that was so loyal that essentially they were able to win with sort of smaller proportions of the vote than they normally would be. And the sort of classic sides of the party, the classic Democrats right now, the classic Republicans in 2016, weren't able to sort of like come together and coalesce around an alternative. And we'll see, there's certainly still time for the Democrats to do that. But those choices need to be made sooner rather than later. And if the Democrats don't start coalescing around an alternative, it looks very clear that Senator Sanders will be the Democratic nominee. What that means for American politics you know, going forward with these sort of two unusual people being the sort of leaders of their party, it sort of throws into question like what the establishment of both parties looks like and how are they going to change the rules of the party and the nominating contests moving forward. So Professor Powell, thank you so much for being on 1050 Bascom. This was a interesting conversation and I'm sure we'll have more to speak about on the next episode. Thanks so much for having me. I look forward to it. Thanks. For more information about the podcast and to submit questions regarding the 2020 elections, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. You can find more episodes on all streaming platforms. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate, follow, and subscribe. Thanks for listening to 1050 Bascom Election 2020.